0: This conference, and this is so cool to be in a big facility like this where we can spread out a little. Bit. We've been so crowded over the years, and so we're really excited to be here. So I, I really thank you. By the way, uh, we have a brother from Nevada, Chris. Are you here, uh, Chris Lynn? Are you here? Raise your hand. I prayed for you because I knew that there was somebody from Nevada, so we got you in the mix there. Oregon, <laughs> Oregon, yeah, we got Oregon too. We're, yeah, we got we got more. We got a lot going on. Um, one of the things kind of cool is we've added uh, the guys from the southern region have been added back to us. I'm really excited to have them here. So welcome them. Yeah, we're really blessed. We missed you guys. And so uh, we're glad you're here and, and, uh, and make sure you meet one of the, one of the guys from Oregon or or, Idaho or Nevada and Oregon. I think we've got all, all the different states in there. So um, it, this is just a good time. This is kind of, I, I think J.O. said, it's like a family reunion. And, and I was just thinking, I, I, it's, it's fun to get back together. Um, you know, you haven't seen each other for a while. I've been visiting some of you, but it's just really fun to see all together. And, and uh, w- there's a re- such a great relationship that I, I asked a few guys to be here to greet, but we really didn't need them because you guys greeted each other and you had great fellowship. And, and I, I, my prayer is this, that each one of you would be blessed this weekend, that, that you'd leave here. Uh, with something that will help you and encourage you. Um, Ministry's hard, right? It's hard, it's fun. I, I love being a pastor, but it's also hard. And, and I, I really believe God wants us to have times like this when we we separate ourselves, we gather together, we encourage one another, we pray for each other. We hear great teaching, and we're really blessed to have Pastor Frank here to give us a little uh, special blessing. And, and I, I believe God wants to impart things to you and encourage you, because you guys are, are doing a good job. I've, I've, I've got to visit almost all of your churches now, and I, I'm just so impressed with uh, just your hearts, and you minister uniquely to you. Community, and so um, come expect God to do something special in you. Maybe you don't have a worship team like this. I mean, I don't think any of us do. <laughs> All right, uh, I, I don't. I don't think I have anybody can dance like that. But, but I'll tell you what. You each have a unique calling to where you are, and you have what God has given you for your place. And uh, so uh, go away encouraged and let God really speak to you uh, this weekend. As, as or this. Few days while we're together, and I, I just have an expectation of, of the good things God's going to do, Amen. Amen. And well, we we are blessed. We have uh, Pastor Frank and Sharon is here too. We're really blessed to have you, Sharon. I don't think you've ever got to go to our region before, and this is the best region. No, I mean it really is. It really is the best region, and uh, so you're really fortunate to be here, and we're fortunate. <laughs> and, and we're blessed to have you. And uh, so I, I'm going to bring uh, Pastor Frank up and, and uh, I, I'm going to, you know, you know, realize he's the chairman of our uh, uh, fellowship and uh, most of you have heard about him. We're going to take some time and actually ask him a few questions about himself. It's kind of a tradition we've started around here where we take the speaker and interview them. How many enjoy that? Getting to know a little bit about him. And uh, so I, I'm really, I'm personally excited about this because I have some questions I want to ask Pastor Frank. And to get to know him a little better. So Pastor Frank, would you mind coming on down? And, and uh, do we have a chair for him? Yep, there we go. Probably had a, should have a chair for both of us. Yeah. He did better than I did. So give him that one. You want him to sit on the table? Here, give him, give him the chair. <laughs> okay. There you go. This is like being in a coffee shop. We're going to sit down and have a cup of coffee and, or share a bottle of water. <laughs> and uh, really, actually, I, do, I really do look forward to these times because it it's a chance for... Uh, All of us have listened to you for years and and been blessed by your ministry, but uh, sometimes the personal stuff, you know, things come out in sermons. but uh, just your background, where you're from, some of us know some of this stuff. Uh, There's a number of, we have a number of new members that maybe don't know hardly anything about you. To me, the most important question, and the one I'm always excited to ask is, uh, how did you meet Jesus?
1: Um, I was raised in a Baptist home, and out of Calvinism, I had to meet Jesus. <laughs> uh, I was uh, raised in church. My dad was a pastor, but I was never saved the whole time, really. And then uh, after I got through high school, my...
0: Somebody else coming? That's your wheelchair. Oh, uh, we're we're not only the best, we're atmosphere. the most organized,
1: too. I think there might be a. Uh, yeah. All right. So I met Christ during the uh, Jesus People Movement. Uh, that's how I found Jesus, through an encounter of someone witnessed to me and on a golf course at midnight. Smoking pot.
0: Why are you laughing? You've been there. Um, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> no. Let's light it up, buddy. No. <laughs> How old were you when you got saved? I was seventeen. Seventeen. How long after you got saved before you felt the call of God on your life?
1: About the same time. About the same time. Right
0: away. That's really cool. Um, one of the things that maybe a lot of you don't know about Pastor Frank, not only does he, he pastored a wonderful church in Portland, many of you have been there and been a part of it, but he also pioneered a church before he did that he pioneered uh, i think it was eugene christian fellowship is that right in eugene oregon uh started from scratch and, and built it to about 1300 people i think when you uh move back to to portland so he he's not only pastored a mega church but he's also been a church planner and and that's that's a a, a different kind of calling different and so that gives you a unique experience and one of the things i was thinking and i and i kind of hate these kind of questions but but I'm going to ask you anyway, because I got the microphone. Yeah. Um, yeah, we should have another microphone here. We are we are mega organized. All right. Are you on?
1: Are we on? There? Yeah, there you okay. go. Um, hey, Bob, how are you? Having,
0: having uh, pioneered a church, is there like one thing, and I, I, there's probably a lot of things, but something really stands out that you didn't expect that you learned or that after you got there and started pioneering you realized this is really important I wish I maybe even knew this better and it's like a takeaway that you that's really because we have a number of church planners in here or uh, actually two ways people have either planted churches or they've inherited churches and 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 there's some things you learn when you're small and building that are unique and so is there something
1: Uh, I think you know try to narrow it down, but uh, one of the first realizations that I had from uh, leaving Portland, which was obviously a great church, Dick Iverson, I taught in the college there for five years, and uh, under Sharon's dad, Kevin Connor, who's a mighty teacher and been around those people, and Ken Mom and Mike Heron and all the people that we made up the team, first realization that I had is that uh, when I left Portland and got into church, Pine, it was about six to 12 months in i realized that i had been magnetized by their gifts and their presence in Mm. portland interesting and that i was no longer magnetized by their gifts and their anointing and their presence i was on my own relationship and my own presence and my own gift that has been one of the, the rudest awakenings that i had is leaving the church and being by yourself Either you learn the Holy Spirit to move in you and get encouraged, or you end up in a desert time. And so for me, that was the first step toward really establishing a strong presence in the city. Was prayer, fasting, and me getting a hold of God for myself.
0: That's really good. That's really good. That's uh, I I I pioneered church. And I've experienced a similar thing that you kind of coast a little bit. You don't even realize you're coasting on sort of the faith and the anointing on somebody else now it's up to you and and uh, it's it's wonderful and it's terrifying at the same time and so I know those that have pastored pioneered churches as well um so now I now have three quick questions A favorite book other than the bible
1: Winston Churchill's life story called the lion
0: good um favorite movie other than the bible Titans Titans oh cool um favorite food
1: I uh, don't have any um, Probably for me it would be Spanish
0: Spanish food you're, you're, Actually your background is Portuguese isn't it? Yeah, yeah. same still, thing almost Still eat Spanish? Yeah Even though it's Portuguese? Yeah so It's yeah. okay <laughs> 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 Well I, hey I, I'm personally <laughs> honored and blessed that you're here And I know we're going to get blessed And, and I, I just ask you to give a warm welcome to Pastor Frank And uh, really thank him for being with us There you go
1: morning I'll be interviewing Bob <laughs> it's uh, eight o'clock all right uh, we will move right into some of the things I want to share with you and do it's uh, again just great to be here um, I've not been here for I don't know how long two three years might be even longer uh, but I do have a lot of friends and relationships in this room that have been going on for many years. Uh, J.O. would be one of those and Bob and Bob Grimm, one of my, my newer, older relationships. And I can start mentioning all kinds of people. But uh, it's good to be with you and uh, to enjoy the, the worship. Those were unique songs. Now, uh, A couple of questions. J.O., are those songs original to the house here? Two of those were- The first two, I recognize the other second, one. The, the second and third songs
0: were
1: um, Yeah, written very unique, very unique uh, flow, unique message to those songs. I enjoyed that, very refreshing. And uh, the young man with the beard dancing, um, very unique, very, very, <laughs> uh, I mean, he, He's, he's got the moves, I'll tell you that. It's, you know, I'll take him on tour with me anytime, just turn him on and let him let him do a little dance. <coughs> Pretty awesome, but uh, great flow, great, ha- great facilities, servant's heart, servant's spirit. We certainly honor everyone in Ardu and you and Ray Dean, and great friends you are. And thank you for, for being such a loyal, wonderful men of God. Uh, a couple things as I get started, just so I don't have to maybe do it with everybody. First of all, my health. I've already had probably half a dozen people stop me on that. so, uh, And I appreciate that, not that that's a, uh, some kind of a nuisance to me. I understand. Uh, my health's fine. You know, it's been, uh, what, about 20 months that I stopped treatment. Uh, seems like yesterday, and it seems like 100 years ago. You know, it's just one of those weird things. Uh, but you know, went through the cancer and the chemo and all the treatments and life-threatening and everybody that's been through anything like that would realize what it does to you. Uh, But 20 months ago, I came out of it, and I've been through my uh, six-week, three months, six months, you know, going through all the tests. Um, And every time, for sure to say, praise God, I'm Um, (laughs) cancer-free. Which is... um, as, as Ray Dean knows, you know it's only you're only one sentence away from after a test. You know every time I go on for the test, I'm back to the buzzing of the machines and the blood drawn and all the X-rays, and you're back in the same place again. And it's just kind of a strange emotion to be back there again, and then waiting for them to tell you whether you're okay or not, and one sentence can change your life for months, years, or maybe forever and uh, so with that the prayers have been good covered us my wife's been a champ my family and uh, i'm healthy i'm good i'm actually kind of like a poster child for them Uh, they just can't believe how healthy i am and how well i have recovered uh emotionally mentally spiritually and physically the only thing where they treated me with the radiation not the chemo i did 300 hours of chemo you would think that would have ruined me enough it did But the 20 sessions of radiation, only just two or three minutes long, if I remember right, wasn't it? Like one minute, you know, just, uh, but it's so focused right on where the tumor was. I just wanted to kill it off to make sure I had no chance of anything going on. But through that, they kind of messed with my bone and thinned out the bone. And there's some looseness in my hip. And the doctor told me, he said, it won't recover. Uh, You're going to have to live with it. And that was just, uh, what, three, four weeks ago. It was a a hard meeting uh, because I still am a cyclist. I want to get back to my sports. And they're saying, you can't ride. You can't fall. You fall. We can't repair your hip. You can't repair your hip. You're in a wheelchair. If you want to risk that, you can. But we don't think you want to, right? And I said, I don't think so, but I want more information, you know. (laughs) because sometimes I get the desire the night. The middle of the night, I wanted to go get my bike gear on and go get on my bike and ride. That's the scary thing, you know. Uh, and the doctor said something to me that was so prophetic. Uh, she's, a, she's a great doctor, but, you know, she knew I was struggling. This is a therapist lady, and I was struggling with the news she was giving me, and she kind of teared up. She was struggling. She knew how big of a deal this was to me. And she, she said these words. She said, Frank, five years ago, you'd be dead. The treatments we did with you were new. And you're alive. You've got to be grateful for that. I said, I am. Don't, don't ever thought. She says, now, with that, we beat up your body. Yeah. We did all this stuff that's wrong with you. You have that. She says, this is my word to you. Pick up all the pieces you have left and build a great life out of it. You know, that was a a word for me because she hit it right exactly where I needed to hear it, and I still deal with that every day. Pick up the pieces you have left and build something with it because that's all you've got to build with. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to try to. That's what you have to build with, build something with it, and so I am. I'm I'm not feeling sorry. I'm alive. I get to see my kids and my grandkids, and my wife gets to be married to this nice-looking older guy, (laughs) and we move on in life, and uh, I have been. I've been traveling nonstop, really, since January out of almost a stubbornness, maybe. I don't know if it is a stubbornness, but out of a kind of a, what, a testing, proving, um, you know, second thing is I'm making transition with my church, as most of you would know that. Uh, That in itself is a mega transition of emotion and stuff that happens to your mind and your heart and your ministry, your future, your, you know, I'm only 64 then when I started the transition, And uh, the elders didn't even want me to do the transition. Neither did my wife. Neither did Brother Dick, who is still my pastor. And he says, do not do this, Frank. My wife said not to do this at this point. But I had, it's a story, and I don't want to kind of, you know, take my time telling you that story. But I had a reason to do it when I did it. And it wasn't cancer. It wasn't just the cancer scenario. It had more to it than that. Uh, But I did make a decision and then Sharon finally said, you know, okay, I can see it. And Brother Dick even came around and said, all right, I got it. I see what you're doing and why. He said, I'm for you. Let's make this happen. And so I started uh, more than a year ago and uh, made that transition with the elders and with the church and with all the campuses and all the staff and, you know, it's just a, a, a deep and wide thing. And uh, Mark has taken the church, he's been with me for 20 years, he's a great friend, him and Susan are close friends of Sharon and I. I was just with Mark yesterday preaching. First time I preached at City Bible since January was yesterday, I've been gone since January. And so it was just kind of strange coming back and, you know, they introduced me as a senior pastor but I'm really not. You know, I've already made the transition, just a matter of kind of going through the time now, which is October 2nd. I'll lay hands on Mark and Susan, and the church will be there. As technically, right now, they're spiritually. They're doing a fantastic job. Tennis is up. Money's up. Staff is good. Everybody's happy. You know, I, I, I would like to have more bad news, but I just don't get any, <laughs> you know. They're waiting for something wrong, you know. That they need me. They need me. I, I can fix that. I can fix that. But, you know, when you train people well, they go on. And um, that's what it's all about. We're happy campers. Uh, the church's good. We're good. Um, traveling's good. MFI's good. Been through a lot of regionals. Uh, Bob and I have done quite a few together. Uh, we've, uh, between the two of us, we've done a so far. So I've been around well through Oregon and Washington and uh, Kansas and New York and Puerto Rico and you know, just one after another. I didn't really think I would do all of them, but I kind of decided I should because I wanted to put a dipstick in I wanted to really um, understand where MFI is. I couldn't do it from afar. I had to go. I had to be. I had to, you know, do what I'm doing right now is get around the guys and the pastors and talk and just get a feel for what's going on. The um, regionals are good. I'm actually... um, very encouraged with where MFI is. Uh, We went through definitely a few years of kind of like this, you know, for the last five years probably with uh, transitions of different people. And then my sickness kind of right when I was actually just getting some traction and getting the helm kind of set up, I got knocked out. And so now I'm back and it, feels so different Uh, honestly it does and that i'm i'm not i hate to say it this way but i'm not so double-minded because when you're pastoring a church like study bible church it's a both hands on the steering wheel every day 24 7 it's a 70 hour week no matter how you cut it it's it's what it is. It's, it's a large church. It's a growing church. It's a Bible college, K-12 school. It's publishing. It's MFI. It's missions. It's, it never stops. It just goes continually. And not to have that on my shoulders since really around January is when I finally ended up giving Mark all my pieces. I had eight major pieces I had to hand off to him. And when I finally finished those, which was sooner and quicker than he thought I would do it, Uh, and then I kind of pulled back since January to say I need to give you room to meet with the teams, the elders, and people, and staff, and preach, and plan the pulpit, and I'm not going to plan the series. I'm not going to, I'm only going to preach when you ask me to preach. Uh, I'm going to just kind of separate the whole thing, and uh, having done that, I was able to focus on other things. I have five things in my life I'm focusing on right now. Uh, Some are personal, and one, which is Probably half of the five is MFI, time-wise, and maybe even more than that. I don't even know because I'm just kind of ramping up right now. Uh, But I I wanted to see what it would feel like to get myself to pastors without having to run home or without having to pick up the phone or, you know, text every day, email, you know, do eight or ten decisions before the service starts, eight or ten afterward, and, you know, that that kind of doubleness that goes on all the time. Not having that's been kind of nice. Uh, I told Mark yesterday, I, I, don't, I don't think I, I regret the pressure. I'm not saying, oh, Jesus, let me feel the pressure again. <laughs> I, I, I don't seem to be praying that very much. And, but I'm praying more for Mark. Lord, you helped that boy over there, right? <laughs> Mark looks at me cross-eyed. He says, you know, it's quite a heavy load, isn't it? I said, nah, nah, nah you'll, live th- you'll live through it. You'll live through it. You'll be fine. You'll love it. And he, he's worried. I, I, feel, I feel bad for him. feel good for him, too. Uh, so church's good. I'm good. My health's good. My wife's good. My kids are good. My grandkids are amazing. And um, we're having fun. And we're, we're kind of just moving ahead. And so my heart for you is that I do love churches. I love pastors. That's one of the things I will do the rest of my life. There's no doubt about it. Um, and so like what Bob just said about it, pastor and ministry is hard. It is hard. I respect every single one of you very deeply and understand there is a huge price tag to pay to step up to the call and then to make work is work, It's hard. And not only to develop yourself, which in itself is a full-meal deal, developing yourself as a leader and keeping your character and your integrity and your gifts sharp and your mind sharp and your public ministry growing and your knowledge at the right place and don't get caught up in trends and making sure you're faithful and you're loyal and making sure you're raising up other leaders. and I mean, it just doesn't stop, does it? I mean, that's a list of stuff that you have to, just to keep yourself on track, just to keep you full of the Holy Spirit and purpose and mission and passion. Then there's that other whole layer of stuff called grow the church, reach people, Heal people, do something, uh, relate to people you don't know anything about. That's another whole set of emotions and passions and work that come. So I I deeply respect you. Believe that you're good leaders, good pastors. I've been to more MFI churches um, in the last six months than I have, probably the last six years or longer maybe. And so it's really just good to see so many guys doing so well. We have a lot of churches in MFI that are doing very, very good. They're knocking the ball out of the park. And we have a young group of pastors coming up that are going to be amazing. Our future is not dark. Our future is bright. We have a a great future ahead of us. And we will be able to do what God has called us. Us to do. Uh, we're not the largest movement. We're not the best movement. We just are a community of related leaders. And we've chosen to relate and we've chosen to walk together. And I think the good thing about us is that you could walk with us for a lifetime. And I have. I've walked with all my guys. Gee, I'm 65, and we started, wow, uh, a long time ago. And we're still <laughs> together. And they're, they're pastor now. A bunch of my friends, they're turning their churches over to their sons right now. There's got to be 10 of them right now that are going through transitions with their sons. And now it's so odd because now I'm discipling and mentoring and coaching the son of my friend. And that's another great feel. It's just a great feel to be a granddad in the kingdom of God. Uh, that you still have family to talk to. You still There's a different feel when I talk to that guy's son, there's a built-in, I want him to make it so bad. And I want to love him and help him because he's family, family, family. And I think MFI offers that. It offers a generational thing. It offers a long-term of relating together, uh, which is pretty awesome. Can I hear it? Okay, now, let me jump into the book for a moment. I'm going to do that. So if you have your book, yes, if you don't have your book, um, there's one for you probably. Everybody, if you paid, there's one. If not, you don't get one. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Um, but if you have the book, it would help you to follow me a little better. Okay? Now, I'm not <laughs> mess up the other guy's sessions. Uh, you're doing session number two in the book?
0: Third.
1: Which, what's the name of your session? Okay, and, yes, that's the name of the whole thing. <laughs> You've been smoking pot behind. Okay, so, Bob, so what are you doing? Okay, you're doing church and culture, developing a church culture, and you're developing the... Challenging the church connection. Yes, okay, so you're doing the challenging one. And anybody else doing the uh, transformation one? Is that not... Right here, Doug. Oh, Doug. Oh, Jesus, help us. Oh, Jesus. Blessings son. No, those are three very, very smart men. And I, I, won't really, I won't really mess with what you're going to do in a way. Uh, but what I want to do for the next, what do I have? Till 9 o'clock kind of a thing? 9-5? Yeah. You'll be okay? Okay. So I usually minutes to do this, but I won't take 80 minutes because you're smarter than most people. And, and so I can, I can get through it faster. All right, but I want to do an overview and let you kind of hear the heartbeat of these notes, and also throw a couple things out that I think will get you to think with me and get you to apply some of this thought in a way that I might surprise you. All right, and so let's just dive in for a moment. First of all, the notes that you have in your hands are a continuation of the last four years. The, these notes don't stand by themselves. And so if you put the first slide up, I have in the first slide actually the last three or four years that we've gone through, whether you remember this or even put the dot together, even trying to put the dot together, actually being the note writer for the A2s by the request of the guys because before we used to get so spread out with so many writers we didn't stay on theme and so we went back to one writer and I happen to be the guy and trying to, but I write for the themes that everybody wants. And this, these things behind me, the first was strategic church, which was how to get a leader to actually think and act strategically and not randomly, to actually do things with a strategic mindset about building what you're gonna build with your church. A, A strategist is totally different than a generalist. And a strategist is totally different than just being a preacher. A preacher can preach every Sunday and not build much without strategy. And a lot of pastors, unfortunately, fall into that category at times in their life where they think the strategy is to preach good sermons. But the strategy is not good sermons, the strategy is building purposes. And if you don't have a strategy to build, you end up just scrapping, and you don't really build the way you need to build. So strategy obviously has a lot to do with purpose and vision and mission and and then how you preach it, how you birth it, how you train it. Uh, Get the notes, they're available. If you haven't read them for a while, you might want to go back and look at it. The second one was momentum. And momentum is a science. For church not to have momentum, uh, some people almost look at that like, well, the Holy Spirit is not moving right now in our church, so we don't have momentum. That's not the case with biblical momentum. Biblical momentum is not the the wind blows sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. Biblical momentum is built out of principles and values and wise decision making and and connecting the dots with where you're going and, and training good leaders and not going backwards with the wrong leader and, and planning the right kind of services is not going off every other Sunday. And uh, momentum is a science. It's not some kind of a undiscernible mood that God brings into the church that I don't understand. It's a science, you build with a science and there's elements that make momentum work, biblically and just in the history of momentum. That's also a set of notes you can get if you, ha- you don't have that notebook, you can go online and uh, downloaded at the MFI website. The third thing that we dealt with was gospel-centered church. The gospel-centered church is really the result of strategy momentum, and where do you wanna go with your church? Well, I think you wanna go to preach the gospel. I I, I think that's what has to happen as a gospel-centered church is not attractional, and it's not a church that's just uh, about meeting the needs only. It's a church that doesn't just preach a gospel on Sunday Easter, or four Sundays out of the year to do a gospel series. It's not about series, it's about culture. Gospel-centered church is a culture. It's not a sermon. And if you don't understand, you won't grow the church through converts. Because converts don't come out of Sunday sermons. They come out of a church culture that knows how to relate to the lost. And so the culture you build for gospel-centered is a, again, it's a journey. It was a journey for me at City Bible Church for sure. It was a tough journey for us to land on that. But we did, and we built it, and it is that way. And we see hundreds of people saved all the time. And not just saved because gospel-centered church for me, for me in this set of notes, It's discipleship. You have to have a discipleship culture and not just a a membership. Sometimes uh, the churches I talk to that have membership, it's a dead membership. It's, It's not a living membership. It's a membership that takes people in after a few weeks, and then they just become attenders. We didn't do anything with them. We didn't do anything for our members. Now, nothing against that, but membership should never be equated to discipleship. Discipleship is a culture and journey. It's what the church is called to do. And then we come to the one we're talking about right now, connecting the culture. Why? You can't really be a momentous gospel culture church if you never connect to culture. Because gospel culture doesn't work just by getting the same people saved over and over again or preaching the gospel to the same people that listen to your sermon every week that's already a Christian. So at some point, you have to get the unchurched, the the culture. You, you have to relate to the culture, and that's what we're going to talk about in this set of notes, and I'm going to give you a couple things on how I'm thinking that we need to all talk about this. All right, here's a question. Go ahead and put the next slide up. Here's a question that I think... Everybody should ask themselves as we get started, what kind of relationship does the church want with culture? You say, well, that's, that's an easy, not so easy. That is not an easy answer. What kind of relationship does the church want with culture? The book, Christ and Culture, the Classic by Neighbor, Richard Niebuhr, Neighbor, however you want to say it, but the book was written 50 years ago. How many have ever read the book? Most everywhere I've gone, nobody even heard of it. If you need reading ever on culture, you will run into him. Everyone quotes him from the Andy Crouches to the Tim Kellers to the Francis Schaeffers to the everybody quotes this guy. The book he wrote is called Christ and Culture. Classic theological book. A classic mind-boggling draw the line and pushed everybody over the line or away from the line. He was the dividing point in Christianity when he wrote this book. And he, he brought up the questions that nobody wanted to answer, and even his own answers are controversial with some of it. But he brought, I think, in, in my own theological root systems and how I think, when I read his book, and I've read it several times, and I've read all the offsprings, because now you have books that just write about his book, and they actually write a book about Christ and culture, and, and they try to interpret They try to uh, they try to go there and they try to take his main points and and there's a revision of Christ and culture that just came out again with two theologians. It's, it's everybody grapples with why because he asked this question, what kind of a relationship does the church really want with culture? Well, what, what is that relationship? And then he drops this bomb. The Christ of the Bible is the Christ of culture and you can't understand Christ if you don't understand culture. Now that would be something to think through. (laughs) And he goes into the whole download of Christ's incarnational Christ was to actually be born into culture. You can't separate the life of Jesus from the life of the first hundred years he lived in that culture. You can't separate it. His vocabulary, his parables, the way he taught, the words he used were from culture. He he borrowed from the Greek word. He borrowed from the Greek world the word church. He didn't make it up. He borrowed it. It was already existent. It was a political group that met in the gate to make decisions called the Ecclesia, the Ecclesia. He borrowed it from culture and saved culture, by the way. A culture that had nothing to do with the word church as you and I use it today. But Jesus being in culture uses culture to define even the kingdom of God and the church. So to say that you can understand Christ without culture, that's a stretch. I don't think you can. And if you fast forward that for a couple thousand years, would you say that the church can't be understood unless it's in culture? Incarnated, interwoven, understood by culture. What is the worst thing that happens to church? Withdraw from culture. Build a wall high as you can, to protect yourself from culture. I mean, that's what the Catholics did, and that's what the Protestants do now, even though we don't have monasteries, we have theological mindsets that become our monasteries. And those mindsets, we are separate, are our protectors. We are puritists. And we do not want to be violated by the culture, nor do we want the culture to have any influence with our worship and the purity of who we are. Martin Luther, one of the greatest songs that he used, came from a secular tune and a secular song. A mighty fortress is our God, was not a Christian tune, it was written by a non-Christian. He simply used the music with new words and was crucified for it. Well, You can't totally separate from culture. Even though you think you have a right to or you should, you, you can't. And so, if that be true, let's, let's try and take it apart just a little bit. If that be true, okay, What is your answer to the question? What kind of relationship do I want with culture? Um, My answer is, I want something. Come on, is that right? My my answer is, I don't want to be a monk. I don't want to be a weirdo. I don't want to be... Away from the unsaved people because culture is, and, and let me say this, even though I might forget to say it later on. With all my reading on culture and all my stuff and, and all this, it can get very complex because culture is layered and it's complex and it, it, it can become very academia. It can become very philosophical. It can become very intellectual. It can become very political. It can become a lot of things. The more you read about it, uh, it the more complex it can become. And I felt in doing all that one of the things that dawned on me as I dealt with the complexities of culture and trying to answer that question, think of the church and what we're called to do is simply this. Culture has changed from the beginning. Human hearts have not. The same Christ, that met the heart back then is the same Christ that meets the heart now. The human heart has sin and evil just like it did in the beginning of time. And so you don't have to get so into all the philosophies of culture to understand what you have to do, but you do have to have the ability to reach people in culture. That you have to do, which means You better know the language of the human heart. Okay. Here's some facts or some some ways to look at culture. Okay, here's another slide. Go ahead and put up the next one on uh, culture itself. And, And we talk about Christ and culture. Here's the first one. Christ in culture, in. Okay, so I understand incarnational. I've already mentioned that. So Christ being in culture means that Christ was not afraid of culture, he didn't compromise the culture, he was in culture, he used culture. He never became culture, but culture was around him and he became a part of culture. Second, Christ speaks to culture. And he speaks to culture as he did in his day and as we do or should in our day. There was a language that he used that the culture understood and could identify With his vocabulary, he spoke to culture. Nobody, 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 nobody used parables like Jesus in his day. None of the religious community. They used, and be careful now with this, but they used a thing called exegesis and exposition of the law. Exegesis and exposition forever But a person can be excellent in exegesis, excellent in exposition when it comes to preaching today and never speak to the heart of the culture. I mean, miss it a million miles. And our churches are testimonies for that all over America and Canada where nobody listens to the preacher and the churches are 50 people, 100 people because nobody even cares what he's talking about. But he is deep into his you know, exegesis, he's deep into his research, and he's doing the German expositors, and he's doing the Greek and the Hebrew, and he's got the Latin, and he is going at it. I I remember when I was in seminary, because I do have education, and I'm not afraid of education, but education definitely hasn't made me who I am, but it did help me become what I didn't want to (laughs) be. Now, if you just heard what I said, it's a pretty important statement. But for me, it was very real. I remember the first time, as I was passionate, I I was in seminary, and I'm in a class of 31 guys, all guys, and they're talking about preaching, and the professor is taking us through how to do syntax and, and exegesis, which is... It takes you forever to do one verse. To do Ephesians 1.1 1, 1 is probably 20 hours. I mean, it just takes you forever to outline it, to break it down, do the languages. And this is what he's saying is, is the, the proper way. He says, if you can't do this, you have no right to ever preach because you never properly interpret the scripture. You're only an applicant. You're an applier. You're, you're only reading. You're doing not exegesis. You're doing eisegesis. You're not reading from the scripture. You're reading into the scripture. Eisegesis is reading into, exegesis is reading out from me. He says, most of you do isogesis, And I'm sitting there going, Shandai Rama. <laughs> yes, I am Reverend Isogesis to the hilt. <laughs> and then we, we run around the room and everybody had to say how you study what you had long. Here's mostly Baptists, three Presbyterians, a couple Methodists, no Pentecostals. I'm the only Pentecostal boy in that room. So they start going around. Well, I spent 18 hours to get my message ready. 18 hours. Next. Well, it takes the hours minimum to exegete properly. Next. I spent about 22 hours. So they start going around the room. Well, I'm number about 28. And I'm sweating it. I'm going to lie. <laughs> I, I'm just going to go ahead and. I'm just going to lie. I'm, because I'm a Pentecostal, and as soon as I say it, they're going to go, Of course. Of course. But then as he start going, he says, Also, tell us the size of the congregation. Just, you just said we're in the numbers, but just how you communicate. And so the first guy 18 people, 22 people, 14 people, 26 people, 31 and a half people. How do you get 31 and a half people? And so they're going around the room. I have 500 people. I have 500. (laughs) Finally, they come to me, and the professor says, Mr. Damasio. I said, well, you know, it it just depends on a lot of things. It depends. It depends on, you know, sometimes the social stuff, and, you know, there's weddings and funerals. No, Mr. Damasio, we know all of us have this. Just tell us how long. I said, well, it depends on if it's something I know a lot about. If I don't know. Finally, he cornered me, and I said, okay, it um, I, I'm good with about six to eight hours. They all just stared at me. And they said, and you think you can do an exegesis in six to eight hours? I said, oh no, I said, I didn't say that. I said, I don't even like the way you guys study. And I said, I never wanna study like you guys, <laughs> ever. I said, because you spend all your time defining things nobody cares anything about. Wow. <laughs> nobody cares whether that's a verb mask and whether it goes back to the third generation Latin and this is what the priest did and this is the history. I said, the housewife sitting there that just brought her kids into the service and she had to pack up like going on a camping trip <laughs> does not care about your Latin word. <laughs> Man, we got into it. Oh, well, how many people do you have? 500. 500 people, that's what I have. One of the pastors said, but we don't know how deep or shallow they are. And I said, we don't know about them, but we do know about you. With your 18 people. How long you been doing it? Nine years, nine years. You got 18 people, but you're a great ecstasy. Do you guys not think that this is a problem? You know, the penny dropped for me. The penny dropped for me that day. I finally understood it. The American pulpit is the centerpiece of Christianity. If you do well with preaching, everything else is fine. So we train preachers. We don't train leaders. We don't train pastors. We don't train strategists. And we certainly don't train people how to connect to culture because they don't have to. They just blame the culture. Of to culture won't come in and listen to me because they don't love the word of God. How stupid is that? How can they love the word of God when, I mean, you've, okay, it was just an experience. Now Christ speaks the culture, but he uses language that almost seems shallow. There were two boys, one left home, he was bad. <laughs> and he spent all of his money on the wrong girls. And he got very skinny and he ate the wrong food and he came home again. And when he came home again, the big brother was really ticked off, but the dad gave him back the robe and the ring. Do you get the point? (laughs) Jesus' parables, and this is always the truth of what happens when you truly connect to the human heart. It's shallow and as deep as the ocean at the same time. But what it isn't, you can't misunderstand it. If you preach to communicate things that are not understandable, you've kind of missed the whole connecting piece. Okay, Christ speaks to culture, Christ transforms culture. How? You can't find a chapter in the New Testament where it describes Jesus dealing with culture. That also shocked me. I wanted to get better text on this, but this is the long and short of the answer to that one. You never are responsible to transform culture. Careful, Frank, what do you mean by that? This is what I mean. You are responsible to transform people who in all walks of life are salt and light and transform where they are. You cannot put your hand and say, I think everybody, we're going to transform culture by putting a good president in. Well, first you have to find one. And then people get really mad when you say, Trump, or Cruz, or he, he, he. I can't even say it. (laughs) Can't, can't, Can't do that one. Well, the fact is, even though we had more all the stuff that went on, and our church was big involved with politics in our city and everything else, and I'm not saying any of that's wrong. This is all that I'm saying. It doesn't really result in very much change. That's what I'm saying. And you'll be so disappointed if you get that Christian congressman in And then he still has to kinda slide by the abortion law. And he's gotta kinda slide by the gay marriage. Notice none of them are really saying it clearly what they think, even Mr. Ted. Even though he comes a little closer, he still has some bailout statements because he knows if he's ever in that chair. Okay, what am I saying? You don't change culture by changing politicians or laws or philosophies, or universities, or you change people to Jesus Christ. That's how you change culture. And the more you win... That guy ends up being that teacher in that university that's meeting with those kids over here, discipling them into being mighty men and women of God, even though nobody even knows what he's doing. He's doing the kingdom thing. He's doing the salt and the light and the seed and preaching the gospel. Every person should preach the gospel and disciple people and people change people. Okay. Are you enjoying this? Yes. How many are getting something out of it? Getting something Good, I hope so. Now, today's culture. Two words, you know them both, I won't spend time, but I, I, I at least have to say it, today's culture. This is overview to help you read the rest of the notes and you'll say, I think I understand the rest of the notes a little better. Two words, modern and postmodern. Everybody here has read it. Seen it in a magazine somewhere, but not everybody can define it. Even know what people are talking about when they start talking about modern, modernity, modernism. To still fight about what's going on. Back when it started, a hundred years at most. Really, it's about sixty. Modern were the people. That believed in absolutes about the Bible. The Bible is inspired by the word of God. You can trust it. That way. modernism. They actually believed Jesus was born of a virgin, had supernatural birth. Modernism. They actually believed there was a definition for salvation, and you could understand it, and people could grasp it and experience it. That salvation worked. They actually believed that Christ would return bodily to this earth, called the second coming. The modernists were not bad. They were people that had some very good roots in them, along with some other funny stuff, but they had some very good roots. The postmodern person has come along. Postmodernism is, is very touchy. Why? No absolutes. You cannot prove that the whole Bible is inspired by God. I remember in seminary, I was at a different seminary now, and I'm doing my master's degree, I never understood partial inspiration except that I was totally against it. That's what I understood. It just sounds wrong, and it is wrong, and I believe in every word is inspired by God. Hallelujah, Shandai Rama, and I'm going to preach the Bible for... I I had all that in me until I sat under a very smart professor who had a charismatic orientation. That's what he calls himself, a charismatic orientation with a theological bent toward Calvinism in a balanced way where the Arminian could still accept you. Until his his bent was also toward partial inspiration of scripture. So I thought, oh brother, just when I thought I was gonna like this guy. But I better hear it and I listened to him. Lo and behold, after about three hours, he's got me. I'm moved. I couldn't prove him wrong. What just happened to me? In three hours, he proved without any shadow of a doubt that not every word in your English Bible appears in any manuscript. So what is inspired? Your English King James translation? Well, he took that apart. And then he did the other translations, which are ten times worse than the original translation with the King James. And then he started going into what is inspired as a redemptive story, not every word to describe it. Well, by the time he finished, I understood I will never repeat what he just taught. If anybody asked me, I would say, no, I'm for full inspiration of scripture, every word's inspired of God, knowing that that's not true. You can't prove it academically. But if you go too far that way, then you have to prove what is inspired by every word, and that is also a slippery slope. So the postmodernists simply went that far and then went further and just said, We don't believe in total inspiration. That's what we're going to teach in universities and seminaries. And that's how our pastors is going to come out. We're not going to teach that, which has happened. They also began to question virgin birth. Then they began to question resurrection. Then they began to question Jesus is the only way to heaven. And so the one-way message got messed with too. And so you end up with an eclectic theology that says... You have to prove what you believe by your own experience. Existentialism became the new theology. And existentialism is you prove truth to yourself by how you experience it. Well, a whole generation came up on that. And so now we have people that, that don't really know if the Bible is true or not, and they don't. I mean, if you, if you go to them and say, well, the Bible says that, you know, Romans 2, the gay marriage thing, it's, it's really not gonna fly because, well, if you talk to some of the younger guys, they have totally reinterpreted Romans 2. Why? Because you can't believe every word of it. It's the concept behind what Paul was doing, not just the word. And so we have a whole generation that are trying to create a culture and in that culture, both religiously and in the secular culture, there's no absolutes. There's no respect for church, God, Bible. Um, you can't get up and just say, nowadays, believe this, because I said it. Not, not so much anymore. Will people just say, you're a pastor and I believe everything you say, especially if you reach the 35 and under. They're going to ask more questions. So if we're going to relate to culture, we need to understand what's in culture. What's causing them to think the way they think? Well, modernism and postmodernism ended up with no absolutes then gives me a choice. Here's the next slide. Here's my choice, all right? I have a choice. On connecting, what are you, what's the next, connecting? Oh, okay, go ahead and put those up. This is in your notes. So these four I deal with, but I don't have time to refer to them, but they're in your notes on the ABCD of Roman number one, the, the purpose, possibility, process, and problems of connecting the culture. If you read those few sentences under each one of those, from what I just said right now will make a lot more sense to you. Then you add another one called choices. What's my choices? Well, I have a choice on religion. And these are five streams of thought I'm going to give you right here. You can condemn culture, which is a huge part of a lot of pulpits. Just condemn it. Why? It's it's easy. It's immoral, it's evil, it's dark, it's horrible. Condemn culture, condemn the gays, condemn everything in it. Toleration would be kind of a step back or a step to the side and just say, almost ignore, tolerate, I'm not going to deal with it. Or you could maybe say, I'm going to convert it. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to change either the thought process of the people or the culture itself. Or fourth, I don't think you'll say this, but some are, I'm going to adopt, I'm going to adopt culture. I'm going I'm to let culture influence me. Or, as some are doing, I'm going to enrich culture. I'm going to go to Hollywood and make Christian movies. I'm going to go to the rap industry and produce some Christian rap. I'm going to go and so enrich culture by adding back to the arts and back to uh, education and back to, you know, build a, a university that will be Christian. All Roberts. I have a lot of respect for all Roberts because I'm a graduate, master's and doctorate degrees from Oral Roberts University. I was there in the early days when Oral was dealing with his staff. And I realized something as I watched Oral deal with his 110 seminary staff. They had a war going on. I mean an out and out shouting down each other war in their staff meetings. I sat there. Oral would come in and he would rip them apart. You are men and women that should be preaching the gospel and standing for the blood of Christ and you are so controversial in your views and your theology is ruining the young human hearts that are here because you are teaching things of post-modernism, which they were. They were from all kinds of different backgrounds and they would, they would listen to Oral for 30 minutes just. Literally beat the snot out of them. And then they would start on him. You're an uneducated man. You only go by this thing called spirit. And you make mistakes like you did with the hospital and the praying hands thing. And what has gone on, the millions you have lost. How are you going to answer for that? How can we follow you when you have no education and you do things that are strange? I mean, they would have an out-and-out argument open to everybody. That was what they called a Then I realized that Oral had a vision, education. He had a vision for doing something with the heart of young people to train them to go into every man's world. But he didn't have enough people that had his DNA or spiritual enrichment in themselves to build that kind of university. So the very thing he started out to do he couldn't achieve because culture was involved with it. He had to deal with the reality of education. What am I saying? Even if you have a vision to over, overcome Hollywood or, or change politics or even do a Christian university so nobody gets taught the wrong thing, it's impossible to ever achieve it. Sooner or later, you will have teachers that don't think like you. And actors that don't have the lifestyle that you thought they had. And then the only way to change culture and to enrich it is through that little thing that Jesus taught called salvation. And you can't legislate it. You can't organize it. You can't make a movement out of salvation. Salvation is an individual reformation of the human heart. And in that, things change around them and, okay, what are you going to do with that? Now, I'm going to fast forward, and I'm going to give you just the last couple thoughts here because it's it's right at 9 o'clock, but I'm going to try to melt this down on, on the challenge of connecting the culture that Bob's going to be dealing with And I'm going to just read this real quickly, and this would be under the challenging piece, but what I'm going to say, again, is not necessarily in these notes at all, but I think it's a great thought for you. I think it's a great thought. What kind of relationship does the church want with culture? Answer the question yourself. My answer is I definitely want a relationship, and more than anything is I want to relate to the unsaved, the prodigals, the unchurched. I want to find a way to connect to people that are in our culture that will not come to church. How do you do that? Second, what position does the church take with being, and here's three little prepositions you should put down. You can take notes anywhere in your book. It doesn't matter where you write these because you won't find them anywhere. You can write down the question, what position does the church take would being, and here's three little prepositions for you. What position would you take on being in culture? Would that be your position? Okay, we want to be in culture. Or how about this little word, of culture? No, I don't want to just be in, I want to be of, of, of culture. Or how about these words, I want to be out of disconnected to, not part of this evil, this evil thing, culture. Okay, you have to answer that yourself. I've answered it for me, and I know what I would do with all three of those. The third thing that I have down, what language, I want you to write this, this one phrase down, what language does the church use? to speak the culture where the culture knows what the church is saying. What's the language? What is the language of culture? What's the language of the church? How do you connect? I find this an interesting thought. Jesus dies on the cross The emperor puts an inscription on the cross. What did the inscription say? What was it? Jesus is? Okay, good theologian. Now, what three languages was it written in? How many would say it was written in Hebrew? How many would say it's written in Greek? How many would say it's written in Latin? How many would say, I don't care? <laughs> I think it is a nugget, a something for you to think about. The very beginning of the redemptive story is the cross. Okay, the cross is where Everything is going to be before the cross, after the cross, the cross, of course, with the resurrection, but the cross, the works of the cross, what happens here, the covenant made, the the bloodshed, the everything system, everything changes. It's interesting to me that there were three languages represented there, Greek, Latin, Hebrew. Why? Because those were the three main cultures that existed in that empire. And so the cross, even the emperor knew, Make sure you put it in all three of their languages. Make sure they can all understand what's going on here. The cross was always meant to be in the language of the people of the culture no matter what people they were. Latins or Greeks or Jews, even the Jews didn't understand the cross. This stumbling block as you understand. Now, that's the beginning of redemption and to me it says, it says this to me. The message of the cross was never meant to be a message to the church. It was meant to be a message from the church. And that message was supposed to be in a language that the culture would say, we understand what you're talking about. We got it. Fast forward. Jesus dies. Raises from the dead has a 40-day seminar. That's what it says in Acts 1. He has 40 days on the kingdom of God. That would be a class where everybody would listen when you have somebody who rose from the dead teaching (laughs) It would have to be a very unusual atmosphere. Every session, you'd be staring at him. Holes in the hand. Scars on the forehead. And he's talking. He's alive. Oh, I can't... Jesus said, hey, take notes. I can't. I can't take notes. I'm just staring at you. I'm just, you're alive. I've never had a professor die and come back to the room like you do. In 40 days, he did that on the kingdom of God. And then at the end, he said, okay, I want you to wait. And this is where I'm 10 days. So 40 days from the cross to the 10th day of Pentecost was 50. 50 is Pentecost. So you follow the... Feast of the Passover, and you follow the Feast of Pentecost. You understand the timetable is exacting, so God's working on the timetable. So then you come to Pentecost. They're in the upper room. You know the story. The Spirit is poured out. Now, now don't let me uh, shake you up on this, but just flow with me for a moment. Okay? Okay? Fire, wind, Holy Spirit. We know that, Acts 2, 1 through 4. We all got it. We preach it like crazy. But then you get down to the next few verses, and the Bible, being the Bible, says, oh, by the way, here's all the people that are here. The Lamanites, the Parthians, the Medes, the and starts going through all the nations represented. Got it? Okay. We know that. Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody comes in. But were they all Jews? Were Were they all Jews there? Huh? How do you know? How do you know they weren't all Jews? There's a way to know. Now, we'll leave that right there for a second now. Holy Spirit comes on them, and we preach this. Day of Pentecost, God's going to come with one fire, and power. He's going to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to speak in tongues. The only problem with Acts 2 is they don't speak in the tongue of angels or a glossolalia tongue. Now, this is where the, the evangelicals crucify us theologically here. We ignore them because we know that we speak in tongues. But you can't start with Acts 2 to get Romans 8 time. So in Acts 2, it says that every man heard in his language them saying and exalting God and saying he's the king and he's wonderful and they're talking. And so the part looks at the Phrygian and says, did you hear that? He said, hear what? They're talking in my language. They, they just said that God's a mighty God in my language, my native language. No, they, they're talking in my language. I just heard him say. <laughs> what happened? The cross and the beginning of the church, both incidents say the reason for the cross and the reason for the power is to connect it to the cultures of the people. And if, if you get that, it does change the very perspective we have on what it means to be connecting to culture. Wow. The cross and the outpouring starts with talking in a language they all understood. Wow. 17 nations. Wow. 17. And if you put Jerusalem at the center... It goes all the way to the very end of the Roman Empire. In a circular motion, it covers everything. And those people go back. Did they get filled with those feelings? Not the way we teach it and not like Acts 10, Acts 19, or the Romans 8, or the Jude verse, or all these other verses we need, which we kind of kind of have to correct our own theology, I think in order to make this thing more solid. But the point that I see in this is that Jesus and the cross, the very inscription and the language on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is saying the power of your purpose is connecting to every culture. And you have to speak in a language they understand. Okay? What is the language that the church needs to speak to connect to all cultures. Jew, Latin, Greek, Hindu. Philosophical, messed up people in the universities who are atheists and agnostic and everything. I mean, list them all out. My take on this, uh, don't think I'm wrong. I'm just throwing this out for you to, because you're intelligent species and you'll figure this out. <laughs> it seems to me the language of the day of Pentecost becomes the language of the gospel, that becomes the language of the supernatural, that becomes the language of miracles that every culture responded to. The language that we need to preach to and from, my estimation, more of a supernatural gospel. That's the gospel they preached, was a supernatural gospel. The very next chapter with Peter and John and James and the temple and going up for prayer and the hour of prayer and the miracle for the lame and then Acts 4, then Acts 5, I mean, what is going on here? What is going on is that the language that every nation responds to has a supernatural piece to it. They saw the fire. They heard the wind. Yes, it possessed. And they were dumbfounded, saying, what is happening here? And then they heard someone glorify God in their own tongue And preach the gospel to them in their own tongue. And then we have 3,000 people that say, I want that. And 5,000, I want that. And then right through the book of Acts, every town, every village, I want that. You don't find them preaching the gospel without miracles. Doesn't happen. We preach the book of Acts. But I think the powerful piece, again, which is in us, is preach the gospel. Preach the gospel, first of all. Preach the gospel. But preach it in a language that Idaho understands, that Portland understands, that New York understands. Preach it in a language clothed in a vocabulary that that business person says exactly what you're talking about. I got it. Not just, if I can say it this way, but I I don't mean it to be mean, but sometimes Bible idolatry keeps us from Bible communication. And it's easier to preach three Greek words than it is to really communicate to that single mother or that gay person that's struggling with everything or that moral or that adulterer or that has been or that business or that, what's the language that today's culture, right now, they would say, and again, I'm not trying to just be political, but why does Trump have such a big lead? I mean, it's crazy. Anybody would, Trump? Why? Because he represents to a lot of people a language they understand. When he talks, they get it. And when he gets angry, they understand it. And when he says bad things, they even get that. They say, well, I'm glad he said it. Well, he has kind of the ear of the normal. The normal. Not at all endorsed in any candidate whatsoever, but I'm simply saying, language has a huge and if you got the right language in your church to reach your culture, it'll blow up. You'll reach thousands of people. You will see the kingdom of God extended. And if you add power of the supernatural to the right language, oh my goodness. We're talking revival. We're talking change. Okay. Okay. That was just a little devotional for tonight. (laughs) What do you think, Bob? I think we can do this. If anybody should be able to do this, you would think our groups should be able to do this. Amen?